feet up, breaking all the lights on the door. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we are discussing youth media production and a whole host of other themes that come up around that. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? You can find us in select places. You can subscribe to your favorite. You could subscribe to us on your favorite podcast application. If you have the iTunes application, you can leave us a review on the app. On the social media tip, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook. We have a page like our podcast page that you can just like and you'll get episode updates and other stuff. Or you could join our closed group, which is Feminist Killjoys Community Dash WT of Power Exclamation Point. We also have a Twitter account, and this is probably a dated announcement at this point, but we're going to be using our Twitter account tonight to live tweet the Golden Globes. No big deal. So if you are listening to this post Golden Globes and you want to see how we reacted to some of the things that have yet to be revealed, go over to our Twitter account and check that out. That is at FKJ underscore PhD. On Spotify, we have a Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape that you can follow. It's curated by Rachel. And if you have extra dollars and want to support us, feminist media makers, you can do one of two things. Go to our newly refreshed website, fkjphd.com. What? Yeah. Yeah. New website address, but... If you go to feministkilljoyspodcast.com, it'll just redirect you. But much simpler for 2018, fkjphd.com. And there you'll actually see a link to our Patreon account. And so you could become a patron. And thank you very much to those who have become patrons over the new year. Or you can click on the birdie and leave us a one-time donation. In either situation, if you give me your mailing address, I will send you FKJ stickers. So please do that if you're interested. If you've already donated or you've already become a patron, you can send me your mailing address and I will send you some stickers. And, of course, for patron patroners, patrons. If you donate $1 a month or more, you get access to our Killjoy Review newsletter that comes to weekly in your email box. And if you download, if you download, (laughs) where's my brain? (sighs) If you donate more than $5 or more a month, you get extra bonus material. And as I was coming back home from the coffee shop today, I was still writing my Eminem bonus up that I want to make. It's like for sure now because I have a lot to say about him at this point. And then, of course, you can email me and Rachel at fkj.phd at gmail.com. That was a little rough, but how are you doing, Rachel? No, I, I, it just actually made me remember to like thank you for all the labor that you do in saying that every week. It's a mouthful, but you, you got it out. Uh, I want to take a pause to read do more reviews, if we could. We read a couple, a couple weeks ago, and I'd love to read do more. Is that cool? Do it. Okay, so this one's title is called "So Much Yes," and it's by KJS nine two three. It says, I'm so happy I discovered this podcast, but also bummed I didn't discover the magic of podcasts sooner. Mel and Rachel are in many ways a response to the idea that sometimes the best thing people with certain levels of privilege can do to help with revolutionary change is to talk and educate other people with various forms of privilege. I've learned so much from these two and their amazing guests, and because of them, I feel that I'm hopefully more of a help to the movement and less of a hindrance. They're passionate and informed without being preachy. If you finish a podcast thinking, dang, I really need to get more involved, it's not because they berated you or tried to make you feel guilty, but rather because you actually learned in a very real way how much labor and bodies to do that labor are necessary for achieving deep social transformation. 
damn, that's like the nicest compliment I can possibly think to get. And I'm so, so grateful that KJS923 took the time to write that message. Wasn't that amazing? That's very sweet. And it feels good that, especially that guilt trippiness that is so pervasive in the activist community, because we've worked on that ourselves, I know. Yeah, totally. Both personally and within the podcast, because it is so easy to get on high horses. But I think through our own experiences off air, we've learned that that kind of approach doesn't work very well at all. Totally. So I'm glad that people feel inspired by us. Totally. As we feel inspired by our listeners. So it's mutually uh, mutually beneficial. My lo-fi announcement is our phone number 414-858-7818. 414-858-7818. Y'all should call us anytime. Leave us a message. We'd be happy to respond in whatever way. You want to leave us a question. You got a topic for us. Whatever you want. You're feeling down. You just need to talk to somebody and leave a message. We're here for you. Please call. Yeah. And we get the messages sent to our email so we know that you call right away. And we love getting messages. I personally love the text that they try, that Gmail tries to send you (laughs) when they're like, oh, we're going to voice a text. And it's, oh, it's fun. I'm like, I wonder what this actually says, because I don't think that they said, like, octopus is <laughs> Diet Coke. Right. So. That's, well, and, like, what an important note about our ableist culture that the voice-to-text transcription, transcription services, I did because I did some transcribing over the summer, and I know you've done that too, Mel. It's just, like, we, you know, it's just one of those, like, how do we have so much science and tech you know, genius in the world, and we can't figure out a slightly better system for folks who need captions for whatever reason, you know. Anyway. There, no, I feel you. There's something going on. I think I've complained about this on air before. Like, the voice-to-text that's in our iPhones mm-hmm. for Siri, or like if I'm doing voice-to-text in an email or in a text message, because I was doing that when I broke my hand, mm-hmm. it's pretty accurate. Like, the technology is there. I just feel like there's something going on where they're, you know how tech companies are yeah i mean they're gonna find ways to profit for sure like because dragon i think dragon is ones that educators can use and it's like hundreds of dollars and it sucks you have to train it yeah no i hear you so bothers me yeah anyway good thing this thing is called feminist killjoys (laughs) because i feel hey i asked you how you were doing and then you stopped yourself by giving reviews so how are you like actually doing rachel i'm Two day, I think if you would have talked to me yesterday, I was still like on my high from this retreat that I went on. Um, mm-hmm. So I had two weeks of travel in the Midwest to see family, my family and my partner's family, which was like lot, just like lots of, you know, emotional labor. It was good, but, you know, it wasn't necessarily super duper relaxing. And then I had the immense privilege of being able to take the time and have the resources to do a five-day-long retreat at a place called Kripalu in western Massachusetts, which is a, a beautiful space that has different workshops and programs. And so I went to this very sort of new-agey, mystic, witchy uh, meditation retreat, and I knew going into it that I would have some problems with it in terms of being overwhelmingly white, bougie, probably not going to engage with issues of power and oppression in these sort of workshops. And yet, as many listeners know, like this world is calling to me more and more, like healing myself as a person with trauma and PTSD and all the other shit that you start to realize when you get older um, or sooner. For me, it took me a while. You know, healing that stuff 
via these mechanisms that actually resonate with me feels like really fucking important um, for myself and for the work that I do in the community and political spaces that I try to be a part of. So I really let myself have an open mind during the whole week and had some of the most transformative fucking wild experiences of my life doing really deep trance-like meditation stuff and lots of like embodiment stuff that was just like, holy shit, I didn't know this could actually, was actually like a real thing. Like I think maybe I talked to my dead grandmother kind of stuff. Wild, wild stuff that was like so, so powerful. And yet (laughs) there's just so much refusal to acknowledge structures of oppression like they acknowledge trauma and they acknowledge like personal pain but it's because like every individual has a story not because like we live in a capitalist white supremacist system and they don't acknowledge that these tools of healing particularly like the really deep meditation stuff which is often described as like shamanic journeys and like shamanism has like a really interesting connection to anthropology as a term but is certainly not like a white western practice at its core right and so mm-hmm. but of you know with the exception of one man of color there everybody was white that was leading i will say that lindsay mack who's rad as fuck she's a tarot reader and podcaster she does talk about politics a little bit more but for the most part that was really really absent from the retreat so all of this is to say i had an incredibly transformative experience, but I feel a little bit icky about having given money to folks that really are like not doing enough with these powerful, powerful tools that they that they have. So I need to like write some, I mean, people write about, people write and think about this. Like there's amazing witches out there. The Many Moons workbook creator, Sarah Gottensteiner, like talks about this kind of stuff. Firebrand Witch, it's so many people. Adrian Marie Brown, obviously, who I talk about all the time like there's people doing these intersect you know the intersections of like spirituality healing and justice but there just needs to be more of it and I think I want to be one of the voices in that sphere because it's like it's so good (laughs) but it's just like mostly led by people who are doing it in this way that feels so harmful and racist and exclusionary Mm mm-hmm so that's so that's that so with some I was but even all that said I was just like on such a high and then finally like today I think two days out I'm just like letting it sink in and it's like like what did I just participate in I mean I'm still so glad that I went but it has some problems but like you said like you kind of knew that that's what you were going to go into because this also isn't the first time you've done kind of a hippie woo woo retreat well right didn't you, because you did something with your uncle a while ago. Oh, that wasn't, my uncle took me to like a retreat center. It was more like rock climbing and there were yoga classes, but it wasn't, we didn't do like shamanic journeys or anything. So, Got it. Yeah. It was less, it wasn't as yeah. intense. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, at least you can focus on, like, do you feel guilt for participating um, in a retreat like that? A, a tiny bit I do. But then that, but then of course I'm always reminded of our, our discussion on lifestyle politics. Like, yes, I, I could have given that money to somebody else that's true but like at that point we could start saying that about like literally anything that we're giving money to and like especially I would say like two of the five of the facilitators were people I wouldn't like I don't have any problem supporting financially if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so that and like the retreat center itself like I don't actually have a problem with like I think they actually have pretty good politics they do a lot of they try to do outreach to get people there who wouldn't normally be able to get there so anyway I do feel a little bit of guilt but I'm also not beating myself up about it partly because it it did feel really healing and transformative for me 
I was going to say, yeah, it sounds like, I mean, just being able to like connect with your grandma. Yeah. sounds amazing. Totally. You know, so. Totally. And you'll be able to take that experience and bring it back into the everyday world too. Right. You know? Exactly. So, like, yeah. Like I'm, I, I spent a lot, of, it was one of the coolest things about it and I'll shut up about it after this, but the retreat center requires or strongly encourages that at breakfast and you would have loved the cafeteria Mel it was amazing vegan food galore we were supposed to be silent during breakfast so nobody it was like complete silence during breakfast as everybody just like ate and meditated and so I did a lot of I did a lot of journaling during breakfast and also other other parts of the day and so much of my journaling was like how can I combine this to bring it to jails how can I use this work to bring it to you know folks involved in the mass bail fund like so I'm definitely the goal is to find ways to be better at healing so that I can use it in social justice work and not and to be like not as fucked up as a as a human (laughs) that too anyway so that was that sounds great how about you how's your first week of the new year been it's been great I've just been getting ready for the semester and hanging out with people. I saw Lizzo and Girl Party for New Year's, and it was super fun. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It was very, just amazing. Yeah. And then my biggest news is that we put our house up for Airbnb for the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. We're going to be those people. So I don't know. We don't have anything booked yet, but it'll be interesting to see if we do get anybody because we're already going to be out of town for my birthday because the Super Bowl always ends up on my birthday. Yeah. Weekend. But the three cats that we well, Sassy is oh, going right. to go somewhere else because Sassy is high needs elderly and yeah, not you know little senile. But we're like the cats are going to stay here, which you know for somebody like me, I'd be like, oh my god, that's amazing! I'm out of town and I miss my pets. And people can stay and get a discount if they want to take care of our pets. Otherwise, we'll bring a pet sitter over. Um, but there's just like high demand for housing here, and we might as well make some money off of it. So yeah, yeah. And the Vikings, if anybody actually cares about the NFL, uh, you're not required to by any means, but the Vikings is the local team here and they usually suck like super bad, but they're actually so good that they're in the playoffs now, This, which never happens. And so there's actually a chance that they're going to be in the Super Bowl. So that's, I think that's actually unheard of, well, yeah. but it, it's never happened. Yeah. So. Well, that's exciting. I guess. I don't know. I just want to make some money. Yeah. And like, I also... Speaking of relationships to, you know, like, obviously, you know, the critiques of Airbnb, but like, this is another example of like your partner with his own money created a community, bought a plot of land to create a community garden for your neighbors. Yeah. And this is like something, a way for you to make money so that you can better serve your community, which is actually, I think, going to come up in our, in our discussion today, possibly. But it's just like all these compromises we make living under capitalism and like, uh, it's fucking tough, but I think whatever. Glad you're going to hopefully you can rent it out. Yeah, 100 percent. I was actually just thinking about that coming back from the coffee shop today. I was going past a garden plot that is not ours, but it's for this organization called Appetite for Change. And it's youth that develop these gardens and then they use the food at the local cafe called Breaking Bread. Mm. And just a really quick story. I found out that they were using a fire hydrant and it's like really complicated to get it hooked up. But the garden plot is a half block from our house. And so once the spring hits again, I'm just going to have like let them know that if they bring over a long hose, they can just use our water. Rad. Oh, that's to, great. You know what I mean? Because it's just so much easier. And then that can just be our donation to the organization. Totally. But I was thinking about that because it's like I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I know that some people look at me like, so you wrote a book about biking and gentrification, and then you as an educated white person showed up in a black neighborhood. Like, yeah. what's that about? But activists that I lived with for a while, David Banky, yep. actually. He's a good, you know, good comrade. He, 
yeah, he taught me that it's like, okay, if you're going to live in these neighborhoods that you weren't maybe raised in or whatever, what you need to do is like be an active part of the community and give back. Right. And so I've always kept that at the forefront and, you know, online, like talking to my neighbors on next door, like oh, God, all these like, well, the suspicious black guy was walking down the alley. And you know what I say to that, you know, right. And so having conversations with my neighbors and I do the most I can here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep. Just yeah. So go football. <laughs> right. Go away football. Yeah. Anyway, let's go into something, a topic that I was excited you suggested that has elements that we can certainly kill joy, but also some potentially resistant and exciting elements. So do you want to tell the good listeners, tell the good people what we want to talk to them about today and why you felt inspired to bring this topic up? Yes. So today we're going to talk about youth media production and specifically focusing on online media production and even more focused on YouTube videos that youth post. And the reason why we got interested in this topic is because Rachel is part of Girls Rock. Is that the official title of the organization? Uh, Girls Rock campaign. And then I'm the one in Boston. But Girls Rock campaign exists across the country. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Across the country in the United States. Yeah. So Rachel was working, as she has mentioned on air, with some youth that were making beats. So instead of you know, Riot girl kind of music. They were making beats and some of them had lyrics over them, spoken word, rapping, singing, and they made music videos and they posted them on YouTube. And so Rachel had posted them online and I sat there and like watched all of them. <laughs> I, I found that. it just super fascinating yeah. that these young people and a lot of them identify as girls. girls. All, all the ones in my group did identify as girls. Yeah. Okay. I really don't like the word like I don't like the word girl. So I often just spell it G R R R L. So keep that in mind. When we are talking about girls, we mean like young women, like very young women. So at any rate, they made these adorable and fierce and powerful music videos. And I was just so fascinated from a representational aspect of like how they were representing themselves. And I just was super fascinated watching these young girls produce their own music videos, which included their own music and their own lyrics. And they clearly got to do it the way that they wanted to. And it was just so amazing to see how they use that space and time to produce their videos. And everybody's was totally different, even though the space was all at uh, it looked like a school. Yep. They all chose different spaces and chose to use the playground in different ways in the hallway. And it was just really cool to see young people in a way that like I used to be. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, this is what the youth are doing right now. Yeah. This is amazing. What would I have done had I if I was in that space? And I don't know. I just found it fascinating. And then given our media studies background, I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's anything written academically about youth media production, because a lot of the stuff, especially with DIY media production, it's all focused on adults, just assumedly adult media stuff like news and blogs and YouTube channels. But they're all adults. Yeah. And I know there's some stuff written about YouTube channels that are video game people of all ages, Mm -hmm. but I was really specifically wondering about girls. And so through my research, academic research, I found the most relevant thing that I could find was this 
chapter by Sarah Benet Weiser, who is a very well-known feminist media studies scholar. Yep. And her chapter is called Branding the Post-Feminist Self, Girls Video Production and YouTube, which is exactly right. what we were watching. Right. And it's in this book, if you're interested, called Mediated Girlhoods, New Explorations of Girls' Media Culture. And it came out a couple years ago, so it's fairly recent. Uh, but obviously with new media, things go out of date very quickly. So we just wanted to talk about some themes and topics that came up in that chapter that Rachel and I found interesting or worth discussing. And so just so you know, some of the things we're going to bring up is we're definitely going to define post-feminism for you all because we haven't done a definition of that in a long time. Also just kind of talk about YouTube as a unique media production site. The chapter talks a lot about branding and how girls brand themselves online. And so we want to pick that apart a little bit. And then we also want to talk about how this new technology that is part of participatory media culture and in a lot of ways, the videos that your students made, like they're very resistance heavy in terms of not reiterating what you often see in music videos, um, especially as women. But then also comparing that to the riot girl culture that is one of our favorite participatory cultures that kind of spoke directly back to the sexist mainstream media mm -hmm. industries. Mm -hmm. And then if we have some time, um, Rachel found this really interesting connection between all of this and some Foucault theory. So hopefully we'll have some time for that. If not, I'm sure Rachel will share it for you in other ways so that that is that that's class today um, i loved that that was like here's our to-do list for class today on the whiteboard i, I totally do yeah that. I yeah do that. it's good i always i always mean to do that in every class i teach and then i always forget but i think it's a really helpful tool so folks know where we're going just like a good essay it tells us a preview yes. preview statement do you want to get us started with this idea of top down and bottom up yeah so there was a couple of scholars that benet weiser quoted gene burgess and joshua green and they argue that youtube is both a top-down platform for distribution of popular culture such as you know a drake music video and a bottom-up platform for regular old people to produce media and then upload it which is really interesting i think a lot of our social media is that way but i think youtube is unique in how obvious that is so you have very high production valued videos going up documentaries films with very, very DIY videos right next to it. And those differences are very obvious in a lot of ways. And so I found it really fascinating just to see YouTube as that, as like kind of both and, and how it's allowed for different types of users to use that platform. Although I do want to just add like a little lecture note in here that the Digital Copyright Millennium Act of the early 2000s What's really interesting is that, interesting slash frustrating, is that YouTube really protects copyright stuff. And so, you know, these girls that, the videos that I watched that inspired this podcast today, they're making their original music, but girls who might do a Beyonce video, you know, using that song, mm -hmm. for a long time, YouTube would just take those videos down. Right. Because it was copyrighted music. And so through that act... The government and YouTube decided very early on that they were going to protect people that had copyright and people who um, were just citizens that were producing their own media that might borrow other people's media were going to be 
punished. And most of the time it was just your videos would be taken down. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that like in the internet, there was nothing that said that corporations were going to be prioritized. But that's exactly what happened with YouTube after YouTube kind of blew up. Because the original reason YouTube kind of got its start and pushed to get up online as quick as it did is the Janet Jackson and Mm. uh, Justin Timberlake Super Bowl thing. Mm -hmm. At that point, we didn't have YouTube and everybody wanted to rewatch it and CBS wouldn't replay it because it went against decency laws. And so they were getting fined. And so they couldn't replay it. What a different world that was. Anyway, go ahead. No, no, no. So the YouTube technology existed, but they were kind of still working on it right. but it sped it up really fast it like it was a cultural moment yep. that got that site up as quick as it did and so what that means though is that it started as a way to replay corporate media that wasn't owned by the person who uploaded it yeah. yeah so obviously it's it's taken a different turn now but yeah so that's just a little extra media law for you yeah so that's youtube in terms of like how to th- theorize it did you want to just break down as another like kind of overarching concept, the post-feminism thing? Sure. So we've mentioned this before, and I think it's a, it has multiple interpretations and it's used very differently. In feminist media studies, post-feminism refers specifically to a sort of moment that we see in culture and also pop culture that is a gender empowerment that is contingent on consumerism and consumption. So it's this idea of feminist empowerment that exists without giving a nod to feminism. So it sort of it sort of acts as though girl power exists ahistorically, that it's not related to these decades of feminist struggle and that the reason that women can be sort of sexual objects instead of sexual, or I'm sorry, sexual subjects instead of sexual objects, that they can have agency, which is something we've talked about a lot on this show, is is somehow just exists out of thin air and feminism is over. And so therefore girls can be empowered. And then it also has this extra layer that that empowerment comes in the shape of what you buy, what you wear, you know, your, your gym membership, et cetera very rooted uh, or very contingent on white patriarchal standards of beauty and oftentimes is discussed as a sort of hypersexualization. As those of you who have been listening to the show a lot or for a long time know that Melody and I have have some sort of complicated relationships about this. It came up on our selfie episode. But the short version is that it's girl power separate from feminism as though feminism is over and also kind of that it didn't even need to exist because look how powerful women are on their own and that that empowerment equals buying shit being paid to you know like money like uh, consumption and consumerism things like that was that clear enough I think so and I would say for some historical context this term was used a lot I was saying I was thinking like 2005 to 2010, Mm -hmm. especially in media studies worlds. I mean, I think the concept is pretty much dead at this point, besides it being critiqued. I think obviously we don't like some people like literally thought that we did live in a post feminist world, just like people thought that we lived in a post racial world. Right. And Jordan Peele was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and he called it the post-racial lie. Mm -hmm. So anytime he says post-racial, he just says the post-racial lie Mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, just like the post-racial era, post-feminism was used a lot in advertising and marketing to just, it was this thing. Remember Ariel Levy's book, Female Chauvinist Pig? Uh Uh-huh. 
And she wasn't down for it, but there was this moment in which women were kind of encouraged to take on men's culture because that was kind of proof that we had moved on. And I totally was guilty of doing that. And looking back, I'm just like, oh, my God, what was wrong with me? But Well, but it's um, more complicated than that because part of her critique was like, women can fuck like men. And so that's like a male thing. And now, you know, they feel like they're empowered because they're sluts. And that's actually bad because that's men culture. And first of all, that like reasserts a binary. And second of all, yeah, women should be able to fuck however and whenever and how often they want. So like, I think it's more complicated. Don't beat yourself up for like being, or are you saying you agreed with her and you feel no, no, no. I hated her book. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> right. I thought it was garbage. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. <laughs> Hate is a strong word. No. I was very critical of it. Uh, yeah, same. Um, I That was one of our first, I remember our first, one of our first grad school classes. But yeah, so, but I think it's nuanced, right? Like, I'm just saying, like, don't, it's not as black and white. So you like the book a little better now, but I still think you are right to have problems with it. Or maybe you just totally disagree with that. I don't know. I was just saying that. She was, at the time, she was highlighting the chauvinistic feminist culture that I was in some part a part of, and I didn't like the book because she was, like, critiquing me, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how dare you say that I don't know what I'm doing mm-hmm. when I want to visit a strip club? Because, like you said, that's very binary of her, too, and she's assuming that all of the stuff is very straight, mm-hmm, you know? Exactly. And so there's no queerness into totally. her argument And she's not wrong in some instances. It just wasn't as complex as I would want it to be. It was a pop culture book. It was a pop culture argument. Of course, she had to simplify it. I'm not saying that she's not – she's intelligent to, like, have such a complex argument, but just the way that that argument was pushed during, like, a time in which post-feminism was really a big deal. And people that grew up with feminism, you know, in the, like, 1960s and 70s, those women were, like, pissed yeah as you said because it just ignores all the work that feminism did and clearly a lot of us could see that things were not okay for women and that like feminist shouldn't feminism shouldn't be dead at all women and other genders as well i'm sorry i'm being very binary at this point it was just talked about in a very binary totally totally yeah you're using the language of like the theory ally mcbeal was like a big figure that these scholars would cite as an example of what post-feminism looks like on television and i actually have this like kind of like guilty pleasure love of the show ally mcbeal and i watch the christmas episodes every every holiday season and so (laughs) it's 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 fascinating to watch that show because it is so full of problems but she, if anybody is old enough to remember Ellie McBeal, you know, the fact that she was, like, a high-powered lawyer, but she wore, like, super short skirts and, like, mm-hmm. all the episodes revolved around, you know, romance in a very particular way. And so that was a figure that came up a lot. So you can also know the sort of era of, of scholars that were writing this. So anyway, that's some background on post-feminism, which will be important for um, Sarah's argument in this article that we're going to keep working through. So moving on from that... One of Sarah's biggest things is about branding. Do you want to get into that? Yeah, I was going to say, we didn't even really say what her... Can I just read her argument then? Yeah, please. Because then it gets into the branding. So I'll I'll read the argument and then you, you unpack this branding thing. So she says... I argue that the website's double double function, so that top-down, bottom-down, or top-down, bottom-up function, as a platform for both commercial and vernacular creative content, offers an opportunity to think critically about the ways in which YouTube is a site for self-promotion or the creation 
of the self brand Mm -hmm. so people can self brand themselves via YouTube. So do you want to talk more about this branding branding concept? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar with the concept of branding and for a long time, I think it was very much, you know, it comes from the marketing world, right? And the, and the corporate world. So how do you brand your product? And then in the 2000s, I think in particular is when we started thinking about and hearing more about people creating a brand. And I used to feel like disgusting about that concept. I was like, oh, like that's like the grossest thing. So corporate. And then all of a sudden it just became like very like common language, like I have to figure out my brand, like da da da, and it's like especially remember teaching. That? Remember what in grad school when we were going for jobs and like oh, people yeah. were arguing that we had to make a brand for ourselves. Oh yeah, totally, totally, yeah, absolutely. It's like for real listeners. Like if you're not in academia, like they were even telling us to oh, make no. a brand for ourselves. Right? Yeah. I mean, even academia for sure. But also, I mean, I think most undergrads at this point like are thinking about that from all the time in any in any field. Mm. I think. This also is related to this sort of entrepreneurial uh, obsession that America has of this sort of like rugged individual, like branding, you know, mm-hmm. every, you know, everybody wants to be their own boss and create their brand and start their business. And there's just this whole world of, of people, you know, trying to do that. And social media makes it particularly interesting because sometimes your business is literally only who you are as a person and all you have to do is exist on Instagram or exist on YouTube and and then you just get paid to because of sponsorships and and other things so really people's identities and personalities are their brand and that's that's their business so C- clarifying yeah. question so like an example are there were the Kardashians like that? Like mm, where their mm-hmm. person was the brand? Absolutely. The Kardashian, example? Kardashians okay. are a great okay. example, 100%. Okay. But then we also see it in, like, the Kardashians, in theory, were famous kind of because of other things. I mean, a sex tape, I guess, is kind of like as individual, like life, like a quotidian sort of banal experience that can make you famous. But I'm thinking of, you know, they had connections to O.J. Simpson and the, the dad, who was, who's the... Rob Kardashian. Uh, no, who's the dad? Yeah, no, no, you're right. Is Rob? No, oh, Rob. Yeah. Rob is this dad also? David Schwimmer. In yes, the- yes, <laughs> yes. So they had some level of fame, <laughs> but there's also these, you know, folks, you know, these like young women on Instagram who are just everyday people, and they're like, okay, I need to figure out how to get famous by just being myself, and so then they follow all these rules in order to get Instagram famous or whatever. That said, yes, they're an ex- exact example. I'm just saying that you don't even need to have any level of fame to participate in this sort of Got branding. It. So that's that's what she's talking about. And these YouTube channels and videos are parts of girls as young as 9, 10, 11 years old trying to figure out how to brand themselves on YouTube. And so, yeah, so I'll, st- I'll pause there. Do you want to jump in again? Okay, so there's clearly some some girls that do that, right, that want to make a brand for themselves. But there's a lot of other young people that just put videos up for fun. You know, like my buddy Tate, who makes, mm-hmm. he tries to do like video. Th- he doesn't give two shits about making a brand for himself. Right. And he's within this age period, right? The women or the young girls that you worked with, were they, did you talk to them about branding? Like, I just don't buy that like a ton of women or young girls use the self-branding thing in their videos. I mean, the young girls that I worked with, that certainly wasn't like the forefront of their mind at all. Like they weren't, I don't know if they have YouTube channels or not, but these that's not what the purpose of these videos were. 
this was like their after school program, right? This was just like Mm -hmm. something fun to do instead of homework. That said, and this is actually related to a current thing happening in the news, the girls were obsessed with YouTube stars. And I've learned this also Mm. teaching undergrads. Like people will say people's names and they're like, how do you not know who that is? I'm like, I don't, I don't know who that person is. Like, is, are they, like what movie have they been in? And they're like, no, no, they're not an actor. They're on, like they, Mm -hmm. they're on YouTube. So it's funny because the girls, when I said I was going to Ohio for the holidays, they were like, say hi to Jake Paul. And I was like, okay, I don't know who Jake Paul is. And then they were also asking me for their shirts when they were making it. They were asking me how to spell Maverick. And I like didn't know what that was about. So I did some research. Mm -hmm. And all of this is related. Jake Paul and Logan Paul are famous YouTubers and apparently from Ohio. And Logan Paul is the one who's just been in the news recently because he went to um, a forest in Japan that's known for people going there to kill themselves. And he like... (gasps) It was that guy? It was that guy. But my girls were like obsessed with him. They were like, oh, he's so cute. And I... So anyway, all of that is to say, like, they might not be totally interested in branding themselves, but they they are buying into the brands of these other people on YouTube. And I will also say that I know for sure that if I had the internet when I was that age, I would have been thinking about branding because I was, like, into acting, into writing, and I, like, wanted to wanted to be like a famous person because I wanted to marry Noah Wiley and the only way he was going to know about me is if I was famous so like I feel like there is I'm I'm not the only one in the world as a young girl who would have wanted to do that so I'm sure I like I know those girls exist out there too because the people they're idolizing whether it's crushes they have on people or the girls that they look up to and of course that can I'm not saying they can't have crushes on girls but some you know some of the women and young girls that they that they that are on YouTube I wanted to be an actress because that's what I saw on TV but if my form of entertainment was YouTube I would have wanted to be a mm-hmm. YouTube star does that make sense yeah you make a really good point that I think YouTube wasn't even at this point when Benet Weiser was writing this chapter I forget like how much because my students do the same thing to me too mm-hmm. the references that they send me or like the media examples are YouTubers right and it's just so far out of my realm of media consumption right that they are interacting with YouTube in a way that I just don't understand so you're I mean you're right I mean I'm skeptical I just don't like the it makes me feel icky because young girls are already under so much pressure you know and it's just like oh my god and now they have to think about self-branding which in a way could be bad it could be problematic but I could also see it as a very positive thing because they are creating their brand and so they could make themselves whoever they want to be online. I mean, I think that's one of the pros of the internet, right? That you can create your image. Mm -hmm. But just knowing how the internet works for young people it just makes me really nervous that it's just another thing to live up to and I just don't love it like I know Sarah Benet Weiser isn't saying it as something to celebrate she's very critical of it yeah because it's like already wrapped up into consumerism and capitalism but it's just yeah I don't know I just don't love it I feel like that's a lot more yucky than like the way that your students were using YouTube for example for sh- for sure and and it's, and Benet Weiser explicitly brings up like whiteness and racism and and beauty standards as you know the people that are going to get more famous more quickly are the white attractive girls which is also gross because they're so young and so there's also you know she talks about some of the very sexualizing comments which of course is a whole a whole other subject so there certainly is going to be all of those power dynamics that exist outside of the mediated world exist within the mediated world that said There are also these stories of like, for example, like there's this young boy who's 
I think queer identified already who does like makeup tutorials. Um, there's I think there's a lot of like gay young gay oh, young gay men yeah. who do makeup tutorials, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there are these spaces. Obviously, the internet is also this like refuge for subcultures and mm-hmm. you know outcasts. And so I think there is also space for those folks. But that you know, surely those people also experience like the most horrific of trolls. And we know how vicious that can be to anybody, let alone a young person. So it's, I think it's what we talk about with media a lot. Like there's resistant possibilities and also, first of all, still owned by this corporation when we're talking about YouTube. So only so, only so resistant. Mm-hmm. And also like can also be this like really scary, awful place for just abuse and perpetuation of of hegemonic norms that are so violent to folks, especially girls. And queer folks. And and something that Benet Weiser brought up in her article is the whiteness, the white privilege, mm-hmm. middle class, upper class white privilege that's Im- embedded in the self-branding, mm-hmm. which I don't think is necessarily true in terms of like how ac- accessible the Internet can be. Not always necessarily. I mean, she argues that those who are usually culturally marginalized because of race or class or other things don't have access to just the practice of self-branding, like what that looks like, probably because of the lack of leisure time and and other things that we've brought up before. But there's also that, that there's like a class and race element to it as well. That's very limiting. Totally. So to me, as somebody who's really interested in identity of individuals, communities, um, and sees identity categories, and when people like shit all over identity politics and, and social movements that take up a very particular sort of persona, whatever. I'm very invested in defending that stuff as very important for like cohesion in movements and a self of sense, like my identifying as working class femme feels so fucking important to me, like all this stuff. And so I'm thinking of relating that to something that we also wanted to bring up here is that when we're, when we're thinking about young like girl media culture, it's hard for Melody and I not to think about riot girl culture because that is, you know, important to both of us and also is is so related to this idea of girls taking ownership of media for riot girl, the riot girl movement that was, you know, in the form of music and zines primarily and other things, but music and zines is sort of what's it's sort of known for but in a sense obviously this isn't the language they were using but the riot girl movement had a strong brand like super strong brand and Mm -hmm. you know it was sex positive anti-rape culture had a you know particular punk aesthetic a particular punk sound Mm -hmm. you know a diy aesthetic and ethos all of those things are also creating a brand and an identity that enables it to be an actual movement and not just like a bunch of girls doing weird things or whatever. So I do think I will defend movement identity and individual identity like to the death because I think those things can be so powerful for building a politics around and using as a method of a, like a, a coalition or like not even not coalition exactly but a, um, a cohesive like front to struggle against like we are sex positive and we are against things that are sex negative we are anti-rape culture so we are against often men <laughs> in general and you know rapists and whatever so that enabled them to like having an identity of what they were enabled them to like better fight what they were against Yes, and I think 
I would be interested to know if there are similar subcultures going on right now in these online production spaces mm-hmm. that I have no idea about because I'm it's way outside of my realm. But if anybody's listening that's younger or have younger siblings, yeah. people in their lives, I'd be really interested to know if some of these things are organically happening. Because I know like my students report back on body positivity YouTubers. Okay, yeah. no The, the no makeup movement. Yep. And I think a lot of that is being born obviously through social media. But I think what something that's obviously very different between the Riot Girl time in the early 90s and today is that the online world is so segmented, like you just said, like you as a class, maybe those girls all had like a similar YouTuber that they watch. But if you took a random sample of 18 year olds, we're not all watching the same stuff anymore. It's really hard to connect with people on that realm. And so I'm wondering if because the internet is so niche at this point, that it's actually kind of hard to develop subcultures um, because we're so segmented, or maybe that because of the segmentation, it's easier to find each other. I'm not sure, but yeah, I'm um, yeah, just something to think about. Totally. I'd be interested to know about these subcultures. Totally, yeah, and that's a question I wanted to emerge from this because I can get very like get off my lawn about how zines and punk is better than YouTube will be any old day. But that's also like I'm not trying to be like a luddite and say there's not potential to to do this kind of stuff. I mean, we've compared podcasting to zines a couple times in terms of taking up space and getting messages out. So, yeah. Definitely, definitely. I'd love I'd love this episode to be one where we learn a lot more from our listeners because I know we have some moms listening that have... Mamas, yeah. teach us what you know. <laughs> yes, please. They're all listening. I mean, it's like one of those things where... Remember when I was saying about Tate? I was sitting on a research gem mm-hmm, watching mm-hmm. him watch YouTubers. It's totally. like, oh my God, somebody would like pay me to have access to this. Oh, completely, completely. (laughs) We would love to have access to like what your teens are watching because we have no idea. Right, right. We could, I mean, I think we could, we could end it there and ask our audience to teach us, fill in any gaps. Yeah. Do you want to say your real quick thing about Michelle Foucault though? Uh, Sure. I mean, I can just say that, I mean, or no. Yeah, I can just say it really briefly. I mean, one of Foucault's big, one of his big theories is this idea of the confessional and in the history of sexuality. He, He identifies confession as a method that the West has taken up on as a as a means of the production of truth and he's very much connecting it Mm. to the surveillance of deviant sexualities so he's talking about the church and the medical industry he doesn't use a medical industrial complex as a term but he's talking about um doctors and and medical spaces and all these different spaces where the goal is to get you pay somebody and also courtrooms when you're confessing to crimes and you're basically you're paying somebody to say out loud that you're like deviant and in some way you have to confess this sort of sin or or peculiarity or whatever and that they then have to fix you and so he there's so much more to say about his theory on this and how it's related to his uh, his theories on on the on the policing of sexuality but i found it interesting because a lot of times i'm not to be fair as a as a good Marxist, I'm not like always very pro Foucault. I think he has a lot of important things to say, but this isn't this is an example of where I'm like, and this isn't because of my Marxism. This is just because of my perspective. Part of me questions his, or I just don't think it's particularly as applicable in all senses. So a lot of people would talk about like blogging and YouTube and Instagram and all of these spaces where it's like, okay, like YouTube titles are meant to bait you when you think Mm -hmm. the vlogger is going to like confess something or announce something. Like a lot of titles are like, I didn't want to tell you this, but 
or like the thing I've been scared to admit or you know it's very like clickbaity I want to admit this to you yeah and I know that partly because some of like I watch like fitness workout videos on YouTube and they Mm -hmm. also have you know they talk about whatever like their lifestyles too a lot of these YouTube trainers Mm -hmm. and like I see that like I see that on my YouTube pages so there is a confession element in that but I think where and if we think about reality TV like there's literally like the confessional rooms where people are supposed to talk about you know their experiences off you know away from the rest of the crowd so we we see this come up again and again but I I think it is different in YouTube in that it's not, it's like they're being paid to confess rather than paying somebody to confess. You know what I mean? Right. And the only other thing that I would say, Foucault is so down on this and like confession is method of surveillance and policing. But I think that that is a very, you know, he is not a particularly great feminist for the most part. It's, It's really rejecting what I think we talk about a lot in terms of like vulnerability and I actually think another way to think about confession is connecting through vulnerability right like to say like 100 yep so so that's all I'll I'll say about that so I think to think about that in relation to YouTube I've cried watching YouTube like and I don't engage with it the way that you know young people do but some of the YouTubers that I do know partly through whatever workout videos or whoever else I stumble onto. I've cried listening to people talk about whether it's eating disorders, just stuff that I connect to. And it's like, wow, what an amazing moment to be able to see a real person behind a screen say this thing out loud that so many people don't want to say. And we see that in Instagram stories too, and Instagram too. Oh, yeah. So yeah, any any other thoughts on that? No, I just wanted to have you share that because yeah. I'm, I'm, my Foucault knowledge is dusty and I always like and you explain theories like that so thanks okay cool and I'm not a Foucault expert so if anybody wants to say that I have like uh an incorrect reading feel free to correct me so well good no man would ever say that by the way (laughs) no no nobody would no own your knowledge Rachel (laughs) you have it done you have it just fine thank you thank you well, good talk. Uh, thanks for suggesting that topic. That was fun to think about. Mm-hmm. My kiddos, yeah. they were, it was really fun to work with them. And, and it is, it's a good, it's just particularly for media studies. I think youth, youth media stuff is, is a cool world that I've never written about, but I think it's super interesting. So yay. Other than Sarah Benet Weiser, what else have you been reading this week and watching and listening to? I picked up Emergent Strategy again. I've been yay. not going as fast. As, yeah. <laughs> is it? It's a really good read. Yeah. Are you liking it more? Yes. Yeah. Can I, Um, would you let me like recommend a couple different podcast episodes with her so you can like, maybe like getting a sense of who she is might help you engage with the book more? No, I'm enjoying it now. I think I just had to be in a space to accept it or something. Okay. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Okay. I think sometimes if I'm like activisty burnout or yeah, know, there's other things going on. It's like, oh, I can't deal with this right now. For but sure, for sure. No, I like it, but yeah, I will reach out if I want some podcasty stuff. Unless you want to recommend it to listeners too, as an excuse. Well, I mean, her her podcast, How to Survive the End of the World, is phenomenal, and she's also on the Healing Justice podcast. Um, multiple episodes of theirs so far, so I'd recommend both of those. Yeah, she's. You should just look no, her up on good. iTunes and see who she's talking to because it'll always be brilliant i'm trying not to fangirl i had a talk with my friend who was like maybe don't like you know hero worship and i was like that's a good point but she's just amazing anyway what are you watching you hero worship oh okay just like because you know hero worship is never usually a good thing especially in activist communities 
I know, but it's still just nice. There's a lot of shitty shit going on it's in the true. world. It's okay? true. I just want to so, feel good at, about my secret best, you know, my my best friend who doesn't know I'm her best friend, Adrian Marie Brown. So, yes. Okay. I support that. Thanks. I support that. I've been watching Johnny Carson reruns on my TV with okay. the uh, bunny ears. Yep. It's fascinating to watch, like, I've been, the reruns that have been on are, like, mid-70s. Mm-hmm. And I was watching an interview with Lily Tomlin last night, and and she's a lesbian, but wasn't out at that time. And it was just it was just fascinating to see how late night talk shows worked in the 70s. And Johnny Carson's actually pretty funny. Very, obviously, Conan O'Brien got a lot of inspiration from him watching. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I see where Conan gets it. And just the gender dynamics. And it was just, I don't know, the art. It's just, it was, it's been fascinating. Cool. So I'm a little obsessed. That's, that's a strong word. I'm very interested. That's fun. In, yeah. And then I'm listening to... The new Peter Gabriel album that came out. Have you heard it? I haven't. Tell me more. <laughs> I'm oh, I'm sorry. Oh, 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 oh. Wait, I'm sorry. It's the Francis and the Lights album. I'm. It's the, they just sound identical. Yeah. So I just well, and Phil Collins. They borrow from so much too. Oh my god. Yeah. Which is totally fine because yeah. I love Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins. But I'm like, dude, how did you get your voice to sound exactly like right. Phil Collins? And Peter Gabriel right. at the same time. Right. Like, you're a genius in that regard. And I know it's like an homage to them right. that he's not ripping them off right. in any way. But it's just like, yeah. you're lucky that there's been some time between Peter Gabriel and uh, you. But anyways, right. the Francis and the Lights album is really fun to listen to. and Awesome. They, uh, they actually put up their whole album for free on YouTube. So you oh. can guilt-free listen to it. It's uh, obviously if you have a Spotify account or something, you can get it there too. But yep. they put it up on free for free on YouTube because that's how the world works now. Cool way to bring it full circle. I'll have to check Thank it you. out. I haven't listened to the al- I haven't listened to the the new album. Just their singles with Chance. Great. How about you? I'm reading. I mean, this past week I mostly read stuff like handouts from these workshops that I was in, which was great. And I really the stuff that wasn't problematic was when it was just like here is like an academic 101 of like astrology and tarot like let me teach you and it was like just like taking notes in a grad class like it was great so there was a lot of learning and reading in those in those workshops but I'm also finally working through Sarah Ahmed's uh, latest living a feminist life which is has been out for a while and I just haven't picked it up yet and for those of you who uh, don't know Sarah Ahmed is sort of known as the sort of person who coined or who made who made very popular in academic spaces the term feminist killjoy so we owe her a lot a lot of praise and thanks so um it's great watching well tonight i'm gonna watch the golden globes i haven't really been watching anything else and listening uh, they played one of the workshop facilitators played this juliana barwick song uh during all the meditations and it's like the dreamiest fucking song ever I saw Juliana Barwick live once and she's like super hipster world noise experimental ethereal noises kind of person and the song is really beautiful so Juliana Barwick and also the Healing Justice podcast which was I very like I literally left the retreat and put on the Healing Justice podcast because I was like that felt amazing and I don't want to listen to totally a spiritual stuff but I like need mm-hmm. somebody to talk about capitalism and white supremacy in relation to this so that's exactly what i got with the healing justice podcast cool yeah speaking of watching the golden globes tonight are we tweeting from at fkj or our personal twitter accounts we can tweet from tweet from at fkj i saw that you that announced that yeah so 
So folks, check us, check us out. I know it'll be after the fact, but you can revisit the thread afterward. Yeah. Great. Because you're like, oh, I wonder what they thought about that happening. Right. Well, you can go to our Twitter account and you will know. Indeed. Great. Okay. Well, first episode of 2018. WTF. Power. Just